Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Here at BCS, we talk about all things true crime. If you enjoy that type of thing, please consider subscribing. If you don't, well then, what in the heck are you doing here? You clearly walked through the wrong door. To my loyal subs, a warm welcome. Let me just ask that if after watching or listening to this episode, you find you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash that like button. Also, if you enjoy my videos, please consider a Patreon membership. I keep the price low at $1.99. It's an inexpensive way to help keep me afloat. Now, without further ado, let's dig in. Remember that blonde woman named Nikki Brass who came forward to talk about a dinner date she claims she had with accused serial killer Rex Huerman in 2015? Well, another woman, this time a brunette, has spoken out about an alleged date she had with Huerman. This woman said that he flew her from the West Coast to the East Coast and put her up in a very she-she Four Seasons Hotel in New York City, so maybe that's where some of Rex Huerman's salary went. The Four Seasons in New York is not inexpensive. I can remember standing outside it one time and peering in the windows like the little match girl. The most interesting detail this woman shared was that Hewerman brought up true crime during their date and he asked her who her favorite serial killer is which, if you think about it, is a very strange thing to ask someone who has a favorite serialist anyway. We maybe have ones that we think are the scariest or the most evil, but not our favorite. I think Huerman asked that so that he could share his favorite, which he said was the Hillside Strangler. And that was actually not one perpetrator, but two. Cousins who terrorized the residents of Los Angeles in the late 1970s. Per this lady, the brunette escort, Huerman said he liked this cousin duo because they tortured their victims before doing them in. All of their victims ultimately died by having something tightened around their necks, and their bodies were dumped, you guessed it, on hillsides. Huerman allegedly stated that he liked this method meaning putting something around someone's neck, because it is so up close and intimate. The woman said this type of talk made her very uneasy. Yeah, I can understand that. Especially when Hewerman then asked her, who all knows you're here and what you do for a living? The woman decided to lie. So she told him her whole family knew where she was, her boyfriend knew where she was, and they all knew what she did for a living. If Hewerman really said all of that, and if he's really the guy who harmed the Gilgo Beach four victims, then the modus operandi, or MO, of the hillside stranglers could shed light on what drove him to commit his alleged crimes. Note that three of the four Gilgo Beach victims died by having something tightened around their necks. The fourth had something stuffed down her throat. Now let's go to Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s. 
Back then, it seemed to be known more for its serial killers than for its Hollywood glamour and movies. You had this incredibly disturbing Charles Manson family murders, remember him? Then came Richard Ramirez, and there were more as well. During this period, more than 20 serialists were reportedly doing their dark things simultaneously in L.A. Now, one of the more notorious cases from that dismal era was that of the Hillside Strangler. Although the crimes only occurred between a brief window of time, namely between 1977 and 1978, 10 females between the ages of 12 and 28 died brutal deaths at the hands of this phantom killer or killers as body after body was found discarded in the city's hills la residents grew more and more panicked the hillside strangler as i stated earlier turned out to be two men kenneth bianchi and his older cousin Angelo Buono Jr. I heard a forensic psychologist on another channel say how ironic it is that the name of Angelo Buono translates to good angel when this guy was more like evil incarnate. But who were these two cousins and how and when did they go from liars and thieves to full tilt monsters? Kenneth or Kenny Bianchi was born in 1951 in Rochester, New York, to a 17-year-old alcoholic prostitute who gave him up for adoption. Two weeks later, a couple named Nick Bianchi and Francis Schiolono scooped Kenneth up from the orphanage, and he became their one and only child. Despite a stable upbringing, and loving parents. Kenny was a troubled kid from the jump. His adoptive mother described him as a compulsive liar starting from the time he could speak. It makes you wonder if Bianchi was a quote, bad seed from birth, or if the trauma of being given away from his birth mother, even if he didn't remember it on a conscious level, had somehow deeply injured his psyche. I do feel that the loss of a parent at any age, even as a baby, leaves invisible scars on one's soul. When he was five, Bianchi experienced petit mal seizures. Someone having such a seizure may appear to stare into space for a few seconds or smack their lips or flutter their eyelids. Because of these seizures, Kenny frequently found himself having physical exams by doctors. In addition to seizures, he also had a problem with bedwetting, which caused him a lot of humiliation, and he had a short fuse, and he also suffered from insomnia. Note that I haven't found any evidence that Bianchi harmed animals or that he set fires. You may recall that the three behaviors of bedwetting, starting fires, and harming animals are known as the dark triad, and these behaviors are believed to be predictive of future serial killers. At age six, Kenny fell off a jungle gym. Do you remember those large metal contraptions? So he climbed on this jungle gym, he fell, and he landed on his face. So this story is brought up, but I don't know if it has any significance. Does that mean he sustained some sort of brain injury that was never diagnosed? and that would later lead to an antisocial personality. His mother, desperate to get him cured of 
all his troubles, tried a twofold solution. She did what any self respecting Italian Catholic mother would do. She sent Kenny to a private Catholic elementary school, and she got him a psychiatrist. By age 10, Kenny was diagnosed with passive-aggressive personality disorder, and then at age 11, he was found to have an IQ of 116. Now, a normal IQ is said to be around 95 to 105, so anything over 105 is considered above average. And if you're over 140, then you're considered a genius. I find it so interesting that Bianchi was well above average. So many serialists seem to have high IQs. You've got Ted Bundy, who had an IQ of 136, Ed Kemper, that scary six foot nine inch serial killer, while well, he had an IQ of 145, Jeffrey Dahmer also had an IQ of 145. There are more examples as well, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about the Hillside Strangler. Let's stay focused. When Bianchi was 12, he pulled down a six year old girl's pants definitely deviant behavior for a 12-year-old. Despite above-average intelligence, Bianchi was an underachiever, and he had to be removed twice from different schools because of bad grades and his inability to get along with his, not his classmates, but his teachers. He did not get along with his teachers. I gotta say, there was one elementary school teacher, a lady, that I definitely did not get along with. The next year, when he was 13, Bianchi suffered a devastating loss. His father suddenly died of pneumonia. According to his family, Bianchi refused to cry. He didn't show any emotion. It's interesting that his father died when he was 13, and Rex Huerman's father died when he was 11. Both boys were on the cusp of manhood when they lost this very important person in their lives. After her husband's death, Mrs. Bianchi had to go to work, and Kenny had to leave his private Catholic school and attend public school. Kenneth had grown into a very handsome young man, which helped him land many dates. He was also very social, and he joined a motorcycle club. In this regard, Huerman cannot hold a candle to Bianchi. It doesn't sound like Huerman ever got a date in high school, and by all accounts, he was not popular, and he didn't have a look or a vibe that the chicks dug, if you know what I mean. Is this why he picked the Hillside Strangler as his favorite serialist? Is there a part of Huerman that wants to associate with the good-looking Bianchi? Is that part of Huerman's fantasy, where he has this control and can easily attract women and manipulate them? Think about that awful photo he took of himself in front of the mirror. He used that photo when communicating with escorts on Craigslist. You know the one where he has sort of a saccharine smile on his mug and he's wearing his glasses with that slight smile? It's almost like he's admiring himself in the mirror. Yuck. Back to Bianchi. After he graduated from high school, he married his high school sweetheart, but the marriage only lasted eight months. The story goes that his wife left him without explanation. 
Perhaps that was yet another abandonment for Bianchi, first his birth mother and father, whoever he was, and then his wife. Remember how devastated Ted Bundy was said to be when the beautiful woman he dated at college who came from a wealthy and established family broke up with him? That breakup deeply affected Bundy and may have been the trigger to his serialist career. Hewerman was married to another woman before his current wife, Asa Ellerup, but we don't seem to know much about that first wife. Bianchi then decided he wanted to be a police officer, and he enrolled at Monroe Community College in New York to study police science and psychology. However, he dropped out after just one term. He then applied for a job with the sheriff's department, but was rejected. Good call on the sheriff's office. Bianchi then drifted through an array of menial jobs. At one point, he was hired to work as a security guard at a jewelry store. Because he was good-looking and crafty, he was able to present himself as a charming, mild-mannered, and clean-cut young man. This opened doors to him that someone who was less good-looking would not have access to. The jewelry store was like a candy shop for Kenny because he wasted no time stealing jewelry and giving it to his girlfriend. Bianchi was completely amoral. He lacked a moral compass. In January of 1976, Bianchi transplanted himself from New York to L.A., and he moved in with his future partner in crime, his older cousin, the then 41-year-old Angelo Biono Jr. Bianchi was immediately impressed with Biono's fancy clothes, jewelry, and ability to get any woman he desired and to, quote, put them in their place. Biono was a self-described ladies' man, but he was also a hardcore criminal. When Bianchi moved in with his cousin, Biono had already been charged with failure to pay child support, Grand Theft Auto, and S.A. One person who knew him, Bianchi's girlfriend, Cheryl Kellison, described Briono as, quote, strange and withdrawn. When Bianchi was short on money, Biono came up with the idea of getting some girls to work for them as escorts. Two runaway teens named Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears had the misfortune of meeting the cousins and were soon forced to become ladies of the night. But Spears somehow managed to meet a kind-hearted lawyer named David Wood who recognized her plight and he arranged for her to escape L.A. When Hannon saw Spears successfully escape, she too fled from Bianchi and Buono. With their income from that gig now gone, Bianchi and Buono decided to go out and cruise for some more teenage girls to force to work for them. This is when they began impersonating police officers. Their modus operandi was to cruise around L.A. in a Cadillac that was outfitted with a flashing light. The cousins also got their hands on fake police badges. It wasn't long before their crimes escalated to murder. In October of 1977, they did in a beautiful young black single mother named Yolanda Washington. She was working as an escort 
to support herself and her child. Yolanda's naked body was found on October 17, 1977, on a hillside near Ventura Freeway. The LAPD detective called to the scene noticed right away that her body had been cleaned before it was dumped. There were also faint marks visible around her neck, wrists, and ankles. These marks pointed to ropes being used. She'd also been essayed. Guys, the neck, wrists, and ankles being tied reminds me of what we've heard of Rex Heuerman's alleged MO with the Gilgo Beach Four victims. Remember, each one of them was found bound around the head, neck area, the wrists, and the ankles. And although the police haven't said it, I believe the Gilgo Beach 4 perpetrator likely essayed them. The cousin's modus operandi was to pull a female over with the flashing lights on their Cadillac, persuade the female that they were undercover cops in an unmarked squad car, order the female into the vehicle, and then drive her to Buono's auto upholstery shop in Glendale, which was right next door to where they lived. There, the cousins would torture their victim, essay her, and then ultimately do her in with a ligature around the neck. Some victims were also subjected to even more grotesque and depraved horrors. One was given an injection of the window cleaner Windex. Another showed burn marks on her hands from what looked to be something electrical. Another was put in a space with carbon monoxide poisoning. All of the victims were then dumped on a hillside, hence the name the Hillside Strangler. After Yolanda Washington, the cousins harmed another young escort, 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller. She was done in on October 31st of 1977. Miller was found naked, face up on a parkway in a middle-class neighborhood. Note that she was described as being small and thin and weighing only about 90 pounds. Sounds like the Gilgo Beach Four victims. Hmm. Miller also had ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. Her coroner's report revealed other atrocities that I don't even want to mention. Just know that Bianchi and Buono were animals. Their third victim, Lisa Caston, was a waitress who was working to pay for ballet lessons. They nabbed her after she left work. Bianchi and Buono's first three crimes didn't attract much attention because, unfortunately, people assumed all three were escorts and living high-risk lives, and they didn't really think that their lives mattered maybe all that much. The duo's fourth and fifth victims, however, two middle-class girls ages 12 and 14, captured all of L.A.'s attention. Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson two young girls who'd gone to the mall and then taken a bus home. Somewhere along their walk from the bus stop toward home, Bianchi and Buono grabbed them. Now the city was paying attention to the hillside strangler, and now everyone was in terror. At the beginning of 1978, Bianchi and Buono 
had done in a total of 10 females. At that point, the cousins had a cooling-off period, as most serialists do. This may have been because Bianchi's girlfriend had given birth to a son. It may also be because Bianchi had made some friends in the LAPD, believe it or not, and had even gone on rides with the police while they were out scouting for the Hillside Strangler. On the night when the cooling-off period ended and the cousins tried to abduct an 11th victim, who happened to be the daughter of actor Peter Laurie, she pulled out her license, and with it there was a photo of her sitting on her famous father's lap. Bianchi and Buono immediately recognized Peter Laurie. Seeing Laurie convinced the cousins to let his daughter go because they thought she'd attract too much media attention. The two then got in a heated argument. During the argument, Bianchi revealed that he'd been questioned in the Hillside Strangler case. The now furious Bruno threatened to do his cousin in if he didn't leave town immediately. Bianchi promptly moved his girlfriend and son to Bellingham, Washington in May of 1978, and he got a job there as a security guard. But Bianchi could not control his dark impulses. In January of 1979, he nabbed two female college students, took them to a house he was guarding, essayed them, tortured them, and then did them in. This time, however, he left behind some evidence. His car with its California license plate had been spotted, and he was then connected to the addresses of two of the Hillside Strangler victims. So on January 12th, Bianchi was arrested. When his face appeared on the news in L.A., investigators there received a call from that lawyer who had helped one of the runaway girls get away from her pimps, Bianchi and Buono. Wood tipped the cops off about Buono. He was then arrested on October 22nd of 1979. Shortly before Buono's arrest, Bianchi had actually spilled the beans about his cousin's involvement in all the crimes. During the two years leading up to his trial, Bianchi got involved with an actress and a playwright named Veronica Compton. Now, Compton was something of a weirdo. She had a strong fascination with serial killers. So she sent Bianchi a copy of her screenplay, which was about a female serialist, and she asked him for his thoughts. Compton quickly became obsessed with the good-looking Bianchi and pretty much fell under his spell. Bianchi, ever the con man, the grifter, the manipulator, convinced Veronica to do a copycat murder to make it look like the Hillside Strangler was still at large. Bianchi's scheme was so elaborate that he had Compton smuggle out some of his semen in a rubber glove to plant on her future victim. Now, this was before DNA evidence was able to be traced back to one individual. All the testing could do back then was show the blood type of the male who had produced the semen. So Compton who had to have been nuttier than a fruitcake. I mean, who would go along with such a stupid plan, lures a female to a motel room, attempts to do her in, gets overpowered, the police are called, and Compton gets arrested. When that scheme didn't work, 
Bianchi began preparing to mount an insanity plea. He claimed that he had a second personality named Steve Walker. Very creative name, Steve Walker. Apparently, Bianchi had watched the movie Sybil the night before. He came up with this crazy claim. He was then interviewed by many experts who tried to figure out if he was really insane. But eventually, the experts realized Bianchi was faking it. In the end, thanks to trace evidence implicating Bianchi and Buono, Bianchi ended up pleading guilty and he testified against his cousin. Both men were found guilty, and despite their most vicious crimes, both were spared the death penalty and sentenced instead to life in prison. Now, Buono died of a heart attack on September 21st of 2002 at Calipetria State Prison in California. Bianchi, however, is still alive at age 71, and he's hanging out these days at a prison in Walla Walla, Washington. And guess what? He's up for parole in 2025. Let's hope and pray the authorities do the right thing and keep that animal behind bars. My God, someone like that should not ever come up for parole. So that's the story of the Hillside Stranglers. If you enjoyed this video, if you learned something, please smash that like button. Please consider subscribing. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Think about what it might feel like, and I have never been able to do that. Are you able to uh, talk about any conversations you might have had with Mr. Bono that would give us some understanding of these murders in California? Uh, I've never really had any substantial recollections of any conversations regarding Mr. Bono. I can't give you anything specific. Uh, there were times under extreme pressure by the police that I made up certain conversations to not get punished for no retaliation so they wouldn't retaliate however those are not credible those are, were made up 